Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. All right, so we're going to um, we're going to jump in here with Genesis 31, uh, chapter 32. If you'll notice, we've separated it into kind of three different pericopes here. Uh, it's really interesting as we go into this passage that, um, and you're going to see in a second that that 10 verses right there in Genesis 32 is this kind of weird jump in the text, it seems like. Um, and, and in our tech in, uh, text in Mark that we're going to see this weekend, it has that same sort of thing, a weird aside uh, that we get into. But before we, we do anything else, I'm going to go ahead and read this. Understand that I did not get a good grade in Hebrew in seminary, and so my pronunciations are going to be the best of my ability, and we're all going to hang on tight. So, let's jump into the text, uh, chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Adam, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to me, the one camp, and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my, of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I'm actually going to stop there because that is already a hunk of text that we are going through. Um, so let's back up for just a moment. You'll remember that last week, Father Chris was talking about Jacob and Esau and, and kind of the beginning of their sibling rivalry. You'll remember... Um, Jacob was the one who grasped at Esau's heel as he came out. Uh, as Father Chris mentioned, that name Jacob is, is kind of goes hand in hand with deceitfulness. And as you know, in the Old Testament, names uh, very well described the, the people that they were given to. Uh, for example, my middle name is Michael, Mikael, which is one who is like God. Um, so I'm just kidding. That, that is not a descriptor of me. Um, <laughs> I'm okay, um, but, 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 but that's true, at least in the Old Testament, is that the names that were given to people were names that were associated with their identity. Uh, Esau, right, Esau was hairy. Um, that, that's, you know, that, that's how those things go into pass, and so we can see that Jacob's character is shady. 
Now there's a hunk of text that we mix in between these where Jacob goes out and kind of starts a life for himself, gets married, gets duped by his father-in-law, gets married again, right? Gets duped by his father-in-law again, and then is able to kind of trick his father-in-law into leaving. There's a whole story. I would suggest, by the way, that in between E100s, if you can make the time, go through the text because it's really great to get that context. But going into this passage now, you have Jacob, and you can see by your helpful subheadings that Jacob fears Esau. Well, I wonder why. Um, he stole his birthright, which, which again was a big deal. That's the lion's share of the inheritance and the blessing from God. And now he's traveling back to his home country. So you can imagine the first thing on his mind. You'll remember that Esau was a hunter, right? He was a wild, a wild man. Uh, and he's probably not somebody that Jacob would have liked to cross. And so again, that's, that's really consuming his thought process here. But let's go back through the text uh, fairly slowly. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. What's interesting is, is look, at this, look at this in context. There's almost no detail about his interaction with the angels. Did you notice that? Isn't that curious? It's kind of like you're, you know, you're, you're telling a story with somebody and it's like, yeah, so yesterday I went to Publix and um, picked up some flowers for my wife and it was kind of busy and then I ran into two angels and then I got in my car and I went, right? It's kind of like, well, okay, let's, let's hit time out and go on to that for a second. Um, what is interesting is that these angels are ones who were also there when Jacob departed Canaan and headed over and crossed the Jordan, they were there. And now that he's coming back, they're there as well. And what the text kind of implies here is that they never really left him, that they were, they were serving to protect him. Back in Genesis 28, there's a portion of it where um, God blesses Jacob and says, you know, again, it's the same kind of promise as to Abraham that you will, you know, you will be blessed through your offspring. Uh, you know, you, your family will prosper. And so, this is kind of God reinforcing his stamp of protection on Jacob, and that's how it's supposed to be seen. Uh, Mahanaim is, um, it means two camps, quite literally. We don't know why this is called two camps. We're about to find out that Jacob divides them into two camps. Uh, did Jacob, you know, did the angels talk to Jacob and say, hey, here's a good strategy? I don't know. The text doesn't say, but that's what that means. And I, I drew a little map for you. And I'm going to outline it. So this is the Mediterranean Sea, just so you kind of know where we're coming from. This is about where, um, so Abraham came this way. He went east. Jacob went back west. And now Jacob is returning east again. This is the Jabbok, if you were to pronounce it in English. Uh, you, might prob you probably know this. The Hebrew uh, does not have a sound for J. It's always Y, right? So you, you know that um, Jehovah you know, is Yahweh, and the Hebrew pronunciation would be Yahweh for that. There is no J. So we could call this uh, Yaakob. This is the Yabok River. That's actually the biggest tributary that's coming off of the River Jordan. You remember the River Jordan from Scripture, right? We got the Sea of Galilee up here, the Dead Sea down here, and this is the river. And what is happening is Jacob is traveling back over this way, in order to head to Shechem. Now, Mahanaim, is, this is likely the area that there was the encampment with the angels. And one more thing geographically is um, Edom, or Edom, is way down here. And that will figure, uh, the Edomites will figure prominently into Israel history, which we're going to talk about later. But this is kind of the um, 
hunting ground for Esau. What we'll also find out later or not in this text is right now Esau is not living down here, but he is actually down here conquering it and making a name for himself and kind of building his own little kingdom, hence his 400 men. So Esau is also doing pretty well during this time of Jacob's absence, but this is kind of where he's coming, and there's about 80 miles difference between here and here. And so again, Jacob kind of knows as he's coming across that Esau is likely going to cut him off at the pass and have a, have a conversation with him, um, which is what he's anticipating. So uh, verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir. So a couple plays on words here. Seir, it recalls the term hairy. Sa'ir, Seir. And the land of Seir, and the land of the hairy. That's not, again, it doesn't sound like a delightful place, um, but that's, that's where it says, Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, you probably remember this from the first, I think it was the first E100 creation, right? That would be the first. Um, Adam, right? When uh, Father Chris was talking about man being made out of red clay, red stuff, Adam is red, right? That's Hebrew for red. Well, Edom sounds really similar. It's probably a play on that word red. And hairy and red reminds you of Esau, right? So again, he's, that land is, that, that he's kind of in and, and essentially taking over at this point becomes kind of named for him from that point on. So here we are back in verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned, basically saying, I was a sojourner like my father and his father before him, and um, I, ha I now have all of this great wealth. Let me give you some so that I can have an audience with you so that you'll spare my life. He's not trying to puff up his chest, obviously, and brag and say, now look what I have. Um, he's saying, hey, how about I, I share a lot of this with you in order to have an audience with you. What we find out in, in other passages in the Old Testament is this isn't just a gift to um, you know, soothe him or, or assuage him or anything like that. This is a gift just to buy an audience with him. That was, that, that's what it predominantly is, is, is if I want to have just an audience with you where you don't take me out, here are these gifts, and that, that at least lets me you know, say my piece, and we'll kind of see what, what happens from there. Um, and what's also fascinating about this is, do you remember what the blessing that Jacob got last time was? That he would be the Lord over his brother, right? And we, we learned that you know, the younger will rule the older. What's interesting in Jacob's approach here is he's actually expressing submissiveness, right? My Lord Esau. And these are terms of, it's not just polite speak. Uh, some people, you know, some people, some commentators say, oh, he's just being polite. No, he is, he is repetitively calling his brother his Lord Esau, which we're going to find out in a few minutes that he continues, he continues to do so even when he doesn't necessarily have to. But it kind of reverses that father's uh, blessing. However, notice that when he is giving him these flocks, when he's giving him out of his abundance, he's not transferring the birthright back to him. Do you notice that? He's not saying, and you can have the birthright back. He's saying, here, here are the things, but, it's, but what he's not saying, what you can read between the lines is, but the birthright is mine. That was promised to me by the Lord. And so again, there's this, he's got a real politically delicate balance to walk here, right? Kind of a, kind of a tightrope. Let's move on. 
Verse 6, And the messengers returned, saying, We came to him, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. What? Notice that Esau doesn't send a response. He doesn't say, hey, good to see you. Can't wait to meet you. You know, let's go to two days. We're going to have a great... No, he's, he's just... Esau's coming, is what the messengers say, and there are 400 men with him. Um, and then look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Surprise? No, of course not. Um, what's amazing about this is, one, you can tell how anxious... Jacob is, because in verse 4, he tells the servants exactly what to say, right? Jacob, Jacob, is, Jacob is an anxious person, but he's a plotter and a planner. You know, do you know anybody like that? Kind of got machinations on machinations and always thinking. So he's, you know, he's really trying to lay this up. And when he sees his plan possibly falling out from under him, he's like, whoa, time out. What's going on here? This, this uh, phrase, by the way, greatly afraid and distressed, the Hebrew verb for that is parallel to the concept of bound up, uh, still. We actually have a, a phrase for this in English. It's scared stiff. Basically, immobilized by fear is what this is saying. He, he, is, he is actually scared stiff at this point. Um, so let's continue. For him and with him, he was greatly afraid and distressed. And so he divides it into two camps, which again, Mahane, maybe that's related to that idea of being two camps, thinking, you know, well, if they attack one, at least half my family and half my flock and everything will escape. It's really a roll of the die at this point, but there's nothing else he can do. Now he didn't really, I don't, it's funny he didn't think about this, but what if Esau just divided his men into two, right into two camps? That's not the most effective way to do things, but that's, you know, again, he's panicking. He's trying to figure out his next move. So he divides everything into two camps. And he really recognizes the power that he, that he is in Esau's hand, which I'm going to get to in a moment. First of all, do you have any questions at this point? I've kind of been rolling through for the last 15 minutes. Do you guys have any questions at this point, any thoughts or comments as we go into this? Oh. If Esau kills his brother, will he get his inheritance? No. Um, no, it's not. It's not you, you know the movie's Highlander? with uh, Sean Connery. It's not, it's not the concept of, you know, I'll take you out and then I, I get your, your blessing from God. You can't, um, you can't seize that by force. Now, he could take all of his flocks, right? And he could take all of his material wealth and possessions, but he wouldn't, the blessing wouldn't just automatically fall on him because of that. But it's a good question. Um, all right, let's continue. So, Jacob does what any of us would do at this point, right? He, he has laid his plans. He has done everything by his own power, right? I'm going to make my plans and, and lay them, and everything's going to go fine. And then, you know, they don't seem to work, right? The dikes break, and all of a sudden he says, God, let's have a conversation about this because I got, I got nothing else and nowhere else to turn. And he prays, and he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He's like, God, you told me to come here. You're like this. I'm doing what you want me to do. What, you promised me these things, right? He holds God to his promises. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds and steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. What's interesting is up until this point, Jacob is kind of taking credit for how clever he is and how he's gotten things. But again, right, he is... He is at the bottom, and he says, God, 
you did all of this, and I'm, I'm powerless to save myself. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Whenever you, when we talked about this, right, in the Hebrew, if you ever see a repetition, pay very close attention. He mentions the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau. He is saying he is firmly in his grasp. He, is, he, is, he knows that he is firmly in his grasp. There's no wiggle room here. He is, in the clen- he is potentially in the clenched f- fist of Esau. So that's just a moment, a cry of desperation. God, I am firmly in his hand. And so, please don't read from the hand of Esau for good fear him. Verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. There's an important principle here as he prays even out of desperation is that he is calling on God and holding God to his very specific promises to him. That's an important principle for all of us. He is calling on God and holding on to God's very specific promises for him. As we navigate things, you know, Lent, Ash Wednesday, right, these bring suffering to mind, Jesus in the desert and his temptations, as we uh, remember the tragedy from yesterday and we experience suffering in the world, it's really important for us to have a firm grasp on exactly what God's promises are, and it's fair for us to hold him to those promises in our prayers. Does that make sense? I'm not going to, there's a lot of text here that I really want to cover, and we're a third of the way through uh, time-wise, so I'm not going to get into the whole case of suffering and why does suffering exist, because we could be here until Tuesday. Um, but I do want to say something very important. What's that? And suffer through it. And suffer through Yeah, exactly. I'm only allotted to give you so much torture. Um, this concept of suffering and, and, and how we hold God to his promises, when you read the New Testament, be very careful to read what the promises of God are for us and what the expectations that God gives us in this, in this world are. And don't confuse the two. There's some bad... Um, health and wealth preaching out there that, that promises things that God doesn't promise us. Does that make sense? And so, you know, again, uh, when we were praying earlier, do not be surprised, brothers, right, um, when you experience uh, sufferings and trials of various kinds. That's in James. That's in Peter. Uh, Jesus says things like, do not be surprised that the world hates you. It hated me. Right? There, are, there are all sorts of expectations of suffering that we have in the New Testament. So we, we know it's coming, but we still hold on to what God does specifically promise, which is redemption, uh, which is eternal life in his son, which is experiencing um, his glory as we seek his glory. Right? We seek God's glory and we get to live into that glory. Uh, of realignment, right? When we live by God's ways, there are shifts that we experience in our lives, right? When you become a kinder, more forgiving person, as God tells you to do, your relationships get easier, don't they? So there are specific promises of God that we can call him to, but we don't hold his feet to the fire for things that he didn't promise us. Does that make sense? So that's just something I I just wanted to touch on that really briefly here, um, that it's okay if, if, you know, if you're worried, for example, about losing your salvation because you're a sinner and you're a screw-up, just like me, um, and you're saying, it is okay to cling to the promise of salvation of God and say, God, 
you have promised me that nothing can tear me out of your hands. You know, God, you have promised that you are going to walk with me. And you, can, and you hold on to that in your promises. And you call God to his promises. Does that make sense? Like, hold on to the things that God has promised you. And be willing to let go of the things that he hasn't. It sounds like a very simple principle in theory. But it, again, when you walk it, it's tough. But that's just my encouragement to you. Um, all right, let's continue. So again, he prays to God and he says, God... You made these promises, I'm holding you to them, get me out of this or help me through it. Verse 13, so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20, a lot of animals, all right, let's just get to the point. Um, he... He sends a lot of, this is a lot, by the way. This is, this is not an insignificant portion. It's huge. Huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, Janie. Yeah, this, this is not my wife and I packing up our son to move down to Vero Beach in one car, right? Because that's pretty much, that's almost what we did. Um, this is, you know, this is a humongous, this is a humongous caravan. He, and he has a lot of wealth, but he's giving a, a, a hugely significant portion of it away. Um, again, think of a ship going down, right? The first thing that you toss are all of your trade goods just to, just to stay afloat. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's handed over servants. Every drove by itself and said to them, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he, went, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Sounds like a big bribe. Sounds like a big bribe. And that is, I mean, and that is what it is. That is exactly what it is. He is, you know, again, this is, this is desperation, and he's trying to give him something. One thing I want to point out to you, though, don't take his continuing to give gifts as a lack of faithfulness that God will answer his prayer. You hear what I'm saying? Don't take that as a lack, of faith, a lack of belief that God will be faithful to him. The text is silent on that. It doesn't say. And I don't want us to read into it too much. But there is, there's another important principle that we can derive from this. A seminary professor, one of my preach, preaching professors, I only had one preaching professor, I only took one class, but, but he said to me, um, prayer without preparation is presumption. And I thought, that's alliteration, so it'll sell. But I also thought that's really good. I also thought that's, that's, that's really good advice, right? Prayer without preparation is presumption. Um, this does not mean that God helps those who help themselves, by the way. There are prayers in Scripture where, we, where people specifically say, King Asa, for example, God, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty, right? There are times where you're just, you're just flat desperate. So it isn't that, okay, God's like, oh, I, all right, you've made enough progress. But, it, but what it does mean is that when you pray, 
you also, like, you know, again, when you leave from here, you're not going to pray, God, get me home, and then close your eyes and take your hands off the wheel, right? That's, that's foolishness. That's presumption. Uh, the temptation in the wilderness, right? Where, where Satan says, you know, cast yourself off, and Jesus is like, don't, don't tempt or don't test the Lord your God. The word's the same there. And it's that, it's that character of Jacob says, all right, God, I'm praying to you, and I trust you, and I will also prepare, right? I mean, I mean and that's, that's common sense to us. Now, if your preparation tries to exclude God, so again, prayer without preparation is presumption, but as he says, uh, preparation without prayer, I'm sorry for all the, I'm just spitting everywhere. Preparation without prayer is practical atheism, right? That's the opposite. Preparation without prayer is practical atheism. It is, I may believe, but I'm going to live, I'm going to live without relying on God at all. So there's that reverse side of that, too, that, that he's not just doing all this prep. I mean, he tried doing just preparation first, and that didn't seem to work out so well. So now he's doing prayer and preparation. Anybody have any comments on that before we jump into the next one? Yes, Marilyn. It, it, that's what it seemed to me, though, as I was reading it. He's making all these preparations because he thinks he can, he can outsmart his brother, and then he's really not sure, so then he turns to God... And then after he reminds, I found it interesting, he's reminding God of God's promise. God knows what he's <laughs> yep. and But then he goes on and he still makes more preparation. You go first and then the second goes. Sure. So there's a point where you wonder, does he really trust God? So you're wondering, does he really trust God because he continues his preparations and it seems like reminding God of his promises and then continuing makes it seem like he's not trusting in God. Um, I think that if you look at, at just this text, you could infer that a little easier. However, I would argue that when you look at how some of the kings, for example, of Israel face conflict, they are both prayerful and they prepare. And it's counted to them as righteousness or counted to them as faithfulness. And so I would say, and this, if you just looked at this particular text, you could, you could honestly go either way, but the pattern of the Old Testament is that those who are faithful also do their best to prepare for what's coming. They just invite God into the process. But I think that's a fair read of the text. Yes, sir. Well, could this be uh, naivete on my part, but I would like to think that somewhere in all of this with Jacob, that perhaps could he have a modicum of regret for what he did to his brother and that be a little bit played into it and not being too sentimental. Does he, does he regret what he did? Um, you know, I don't think that there is any apology. Well, no, no, no. That's not true. He does try to make amends. That's not true. He does try to make amends. It's not, the, you know, it's not a grovel, it's certainly not a groveling apology and it's certainly not a, um, I wish I had never done this, because he did, again, the promise was from God, right? This wasn't just Jacob being a dirtbag. He also was, you know, kind of, again, I don't want to get into predestination, but, or, you know, foreordained or whatever you want to call it by God to be the one that carries the blessing. So God did have his hand on that. And it's hard to apologize fully for things that God had his hand in, right? I mean, that's, I think that's also one way to look at that is, well, if God wants this, Maybe the way I did it wasn't the right way to do it, but it's hard to apologize for it happening. Um, don't, don't try too hard to apply that in your own life, or you're going to be uh, trying to wiggle out of a lot of apologies. Hey, God, 
God wanted me to have your things. Um, yeah, don't do that. So, all right, let's continue with verse 22. Jacob wrestles with God. The same night he arose and took two wives and two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. One point on this, we don't know if he did that because he was of cowardice or, or if he had something else in mind. Uh, he, it could have been cowardice. It could have been I need some time to do some extensive prayer or figure something out. Um, we don't know. Again, we could read into it, but we've got to keep moving. Um, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Verse 25, again, you see how sudden these appearances are, by the way? This, everybody else is sent ahead, and all of a sudden, a man is wrestling with Jacob. The Hebrew text doesn't really give you a lot of buildup sometimes, right? It's like, oh, by the way, now they're wrestling. It's like, okay, um, it's kind of like, sorry, this is an aside, but you, you, know, you know you know when you're dreaming, when like you're just at a new place or in a new scene or something else is happening. It's kind of like the movie Inception, right? All of a sudden you're here and there's no explanation. It's what it feels like sometimes. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. A lot of questions come to mind. Um, I'm going to ask a couple for you, and then if you have a few, I'll add them to the list. Who was this man? How is it that a man wrestled with God and, as the text said, prevailed? What does that mean to prevail in wrestling with God? Uh, why is this person, you know, is this person really unable to get out of Jacob's grasp as the dawn is breaking? Or is there something more going on here, right? Do you have any other ones that you want to throw on top of that pile? Why didn't Jacob die? Because he actually touched God. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah Moses couldn't see him. Do you know when interaction with Moses? No one can see his face and live. Is this Jesus, right? A, prefig you know, a, a theophany of some sort? Is it Jesus that's actually the man here wrestling? Uh, I'm going to sorely disappoint you. Um, I, that's just what happens sometimes when you read the Old Testament. There are probably three dozen different interpretations and opinions here. I'm going to give you what I think, and that's the best you're going to get. But I see, I see a few of you have some thick study Bibles, so good luck. Um, Why couldn't it have been one of the angels that was Why couldn't it have been one of the angels that was following him? So, a couple things about this I want to, I want to touch on. Um, first, what's the identity I believe it's, I think it's Hosea that mentions, or Habakkuk, one of the prophets with an H, um, that mentions that it's actually an angel that's, that goes back and speaks about this and gives us some light into the text that this is an angel, a messenger sent from God. Um, and so that kind of solves the identity problem a little bit, is this, oh, it's an angel of God. And so some of Jacob's exclamations about God maybe, I mean, again, Jacob doesn't call him 
It doesn't say you are God, but says, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. There is a strong identification of God with his angels in the Old Testament, if you'll notice that. Whenever we interpret something like that, these theophanies, it's, well, is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it an, an angel? I mean, think, of, think again, the name Michael, right? One who is like God, Mikael, Gabriel, God is my strength, like all of these associations with God. The, the Hebrew text doesn't allow us to parse it out that cleanly as much as we would particularly like to. What he could be saying is, I've seen the face of God. I have, I've seen the face of one who is from God. Um, could, be, could be one way to see that. Or I've seen the divine radiance of God. Or the voice of God came through the angel and therefore I have um, you know, spoken to God face to face. It's a little more messy than our Western minds would like, right? We want things to be orderly and um, you know, complete and structured. But this, this text is just a little messier than that. Um, but there are a couple implications here. First, there's a play on words that I want us to touch on here. Wrestled is Yeabek. Jacob is Jacob. The river they are at is the Yabok. Right? There's this, there's this sort of play on words which could signal that this is kind of a culmination of events and really serves to kind of re- emphasize the significant change that's about to happen with a renaming. You have all these forces kind of coming together and it shows God's hand at work. The name of the river, the name of the person there, and the act that's happening there is this kind of maelstrom of similar things that, that's kind of an exclamation point on what's happening. Also, if you'll notice, whenever there's a break in the text, so a pericope is what you call a story. You all follow me so far? Sorry, I keep looking up at that daggum clock and it's, it's keeping me moving. Um, a pericope is a, is a group of texts that's a story. And whenever you have what looks like they should, like pericopes that should continue, but there's a text in between, that's a strong emphasis. Mark does it a lot, which is what you hear on Sunday. It's called a Markin sandwich, is, is the sophisticated theological term for that, but that is what scholars call it, is a sandwich. But it says, you know, again, pay close attention to this. Do you guys remember the chiastic structure that Father Chris spoke about? Where you have sentence A that corresponds down here, and B that corresponds with this one, right? C, I was about to write D. C, and then D. And whatever this is, is the point of the passage, and the structure really helps you see that point. Um, there is actually a chiasm in the text that we're covering today. I'm not going to write it out because it's, it's trivia and it'll take too much time. But, but these pericopes also kind of hone in on what, what kind of the point of whatever the particular story is or these injunctions. Does that kind of make sense? It's basically, again, a signal to pay attention. Um, May I ask a question? Yes. Yeah, please. I think when he sent the wives and the maids and the eleven children, that that was an attempt to soften up his brother too. Mm -hmm. Because his brother surely would not attack women and children. You would think not? You would think not. Yes. That was that was common practice. Ooh. Yeah, it was it was it was common, common practice. Um, I think we spoke about this a little bit. An adult form a few weeks ago or something. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. When you went to war with somebody, you 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 either 
you either obliterated them as a people, or if you wanted revenge, you obliterated them as a people, or you obliterated the men and then took the wives and children as slaves, um, which a lot of women, a lot of people back then viewed as worse than death. You know, it was, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, well, just kill me rather than have me be, again, kids, if you're watching at home, not that you would be. I don't want to get into details. But, but you know, that's kind of one of those things where um, that was really common, especially if somebody's coming for vengeance. It's, I'm going to take out your whole family line so that your name is blotted out from the earth. Does that make sense? Like, your name will be erased, erased from the planet. You will no longer be known. Yes? I think it also goes back to that way revenge could not be taken upon. Mm -hmm, sure. And that's a lot of history on that. My question comes down to, is this wrestling physical or is this a mental? All right, great question. Uh, first, I want to restate your point that it's also so that people don't continue to take revenge. So, you know, so it cuts off the cycle of revenge, and that's, that's certainly one of the reasons. And the second one, is this, is this physical or is it mental or you know, purely spiritual or anything like that? Every indicator has this was a real, historic, physical wrestling with God or with, with an angel, with a representative from God. This is, this is a real thing, um, which is why, again, the, the touch like on the hip and the dislocation, like that was a, that was a real physical pain that he had to endure. Um, this isn't just a, a, a metaphor and this isn't just some you know, bad dream that he had. This is a real, this is a real thing that happened. Which is, again, it's just, it, it, it begs a lot of questions. And in fact, there's an, I'm going to keep moving, but there's an enigma in this passage. You'll notice that the man's identity is not revealed. And you'll notice this, let me out before daybreak, right? So this idea of, you know, once the sun shines, it will be revealed who I am sort of thing. So that's kind of the mysterious element, element to this. Um, one, I would say... Just, just as a point of clarifying point, this is a no-dumb moment, but God, you know, if you sit down and arm wrestle God, you're not going to win, right? That Nobody's going to win. But I think what he's talking about is this, wrestle, like think about the prayer. That's wrestling with God. The prayer that he just had was wrestling with God in prayer, calling him to his promises, expressing his anguish. I mean, you all ever done that? I have. Wrestle, like just really wrestled with God. So, so Jacob did wrestle with God. There was, there was a prayer of wrestling and then a, a physical encounter with God. But Jacob, in his wrestling with God, came to rest on God's promises. My favorite psalm, I told you this before, Psalm 13. It's super short. That's probably why it's my favorite. But um, it starts off talking about anguish and pain. And then the last verse is um, something along the lines of, but I will yet worship you because you have dealt bountifully with me. And it's that concept of somebody wrestling with God, but coming to holding on to that promise as that last resort or that thing to grab onto. Does that make sense? And so Jacob did just wrestle with God in prayer, and now there's a physical wrestling that kind of uh, points back towards the prayer and brings that to light and what that means for him. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Some, some say... And after this, with the change of his name, his morality completely shifted and changed, and now he was a whole different person and was great and no longer duplicitous. I don't see that in the text. We're going to get to a point where we kind of debate that back and forth in about 10 minutes. Um, but I don't see that in the text. But this is one of, those, one of those moments of struggle where he is given a new name and an identity associated with that name. 
Does anybody know offhand what Israel means? Yeah, wrestling with God, um, you know, God struggles, struggling with God. Um, so there is a shift in identity here that takes place where God kind of declares who he is now. Because again, there was this humiliation and shame associated with Jacob, this deceitfulness and underhandedness. And now God is saying, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, I am making you new. It's kind of, I mean, again, it's very, it's, it's very similar to the way that when we become Christians, we are made new, but we still struggle, right? Our struggle, you know, there are some, there are some things over which we, we have been given power by God. Um, the way that people describe it is that once you become a Christian, you are freed from sin's dominance, but not sin's influence. Does that make sense? So once you become a Christian... No longer, no longer are you dominated, no longer are you helpless in the face of sin. No longer are you helpless in the face of sin. But that, does, that certainly does not mean that you will not be influenced, and that certainly does not mean that you will not be affected by it. Right? Does that make sense? And so I think you can kind of see that in Jacob. Now, does Jacob have the Holy Spirit residing within him or the imputed righteousness of Christ? Um, no. But, but you do see, a, you, there, you can read a little bit of a softening of Jacob here, and there's certainly establishment of an identity. Does that make sense? So you're saying change of name doesn't mean that he hasn't received the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I'm sa I am saying that there, there is no indication in the text that, that the Holy Spirit of God entered into him. A lot of times the Hebrew, when the Spirit does, because the Spirit um, entered the prophets, right? When it entered Saul um, early on, it entered into David, It'll say the Spirit of God rested upon them, typically. Rather than enter into, typically, in the Old Testament, it's upon. Um, but this text does not explicitly say it. Um, and there's not, a, in my opinion, a strong enough clear change in moral character to assume it. I think that it's something that you can you know, consider or kick around, but it's not something I would you know, stand on up here and say, that's what happened. Does that make sense? And you really don't know at this point in our reading how he's going to react with his brother. You have no idea. Yeah, you have no idea. You don't know how he's going to react. You certainly don't know how Esau's going to react. You don't know what happened. Yeah, you don't know what happened. Um, I want to touch on one pastoral point here that, that's important to me. This whole concept of a new name. Uh, you probably know this in, in some cultures and in some times when people, you know, given their Christian names, right? People were renamed upon their baptism into Christianity. That's also, that also prefigures this whole naming thing. Naming is not just something that was isolated to that particular culture and context at that particular time. There is a spiritual component to be given, given a new name that's really powerful. Um, it comes out of Revelation 2.17 where Jesus is talking and he says, you know, um, you know, behold, I will give you a new name or a white stone with a new name written on it, right, that only God knows. And that concept of a new name and a white stone, and what Jesus is saying, basically, it's this concept of identity, is this white stone has the name that God has given you. This is, this is, this is essentially who you are in him, um, which is what's so beautiful to me about the picture of heaven and new creation is all the crap Right? All the sin, all the stuff I've been put through and you've been put through and you've put yourself through right, and, and, and just have happened to you regardless of fault, 
all that gets just kind of melted away and, and pulled off and ripped off. And finally, you get to be uh, in the context of, you know, in front of your loved ones, in front of Christ. And, and, and C.S. Lewis puts it, and they say, you know, he says something along the lines of, you know, they'll look at you and say, oh, you know, that's, that's you. I knew it all along. Or I knew you were in there, uh, which, is a, which is a beautiful thing to think about. It's a beautiful thing to hold on to, too, as we encounter struggle and difficulty, that, that you've got a name that God has given you, um, that in some ways you're living into it right now, and in some ways you're not. But that, that name, that white stone that it's written on isn't shifting or changing at all, regardless of your actions, and it's going to be given to you. Does that make sense? It's really neat. I'm, I'm going way off here, but two more things on the white stone that are beautiful. The white stone um, in Roman times symbolized two things. One, if you were acquitted in the court of law, that was symbolized by a white stone. And two... If you, if you were victorious in the, uh, in the games and you were, you were invited to a very exclusive banquet, and guess what your, 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 your uh, invitation was? A white stone. Isn't that beautiful? The white stone symbolizes your new identity in Christ. It symbolizes the banquet that you're invited to of celebration, and it symbolizes your acquittal all at the same time. I love that, by the way. So spend some time on Revelation 2.17. That's, that's a powerful one. Um, so again, this concept of naming, this isn't just Old Testament, um, not applicable today, you know, won't, won't affect you in the future. Does that make sense? All right, let's continue because I got 13 minutes and uh, a chapter to do. So that was the first chapter. Second chapter, let's go. <clears throat> and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Again, we know about his favoritism. Um, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So here's where we get into that, did he change? Did he change because he went in ahead of them, his family, um, you know, and, and kind of put himself as the spearhead of this and, you know, in order to placate him to protect them, or was this just the ceremonial procession and the way that they ordered things in that day? Because this could have also just been a standard ceremonial procession for that day. Does that make sense? You can read into it either way. Um, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to stand on either one. I do think I do think that something happened in his heart. I do think that there was, my personally, my personal opinion is that there was some sort of shift that happened in him after encountering God um, and struggling mightily with him. And it is, you can read that it's an imperfect change, but I believe that he shifted even, again, and we describe this transition in Christianity. Well, New Testament describes it as a shift from one degree to the next, right? Like think of a, you know, an actual degree like on a protractor, it can change your entire trajectory, but it looks like such a shuttle shift, subtle shift. Does that make sense? Um, I think that, however, him walking ahead was a, was a boldness that he wanted to display to his brother. Yeah, it could be. Uh, he, when you're encountering uh, a challenge of any kind, I think, uh, I, that's the way I feel, uh, you have to stand up to 
whatever you your belief is or whatever hmm. uh, you think is the right way to do that. He was protecting, I think, his families and his children. And uh, he was not going to let 400 men and Esau, I don't think, challenge him without a challenge by himself. Okay, so, Bill, so Bill's saying, um, looking at this passage and saying, well, it's possible that he was going out in front in order to protect them and as a challenge in response to the challenge that was presenting itself to him. Uh, that, is, that is a possible interpretation of the passage. That's certainly a possible interpretation of the passage. I would say in verse 3, he does prostrate himself seven times as he's walking up to Esau. So that could be part of it too. I mean, he might still be going up boldly and just showing humility, or he might be in, in the same scared stiff. We don't know, but that's certainly a possibility. Um, look at verse 4, though. This is so great. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. I'm going to get into that in a second. So, isn't this, isn't what, a, what, a, what an amazing thing, right? You get this um, anticipation, this what's going to happen next. Um, I'm sure all of you read ahead, so you knew. But, but, you know, if you're just kind of going slowly through the text like we are, it's what's going to happen. Well, he runs up and he gives him a hug. Not only that, but look at the specific words. Embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Do you remember what happened last week when uh, Jacob was being sneaky and getting the blessing? Do you remember what? Do you remember what his father touched? Right, fell on his neck, kissed him. Right, there was that was that was part of it too. These words are intentionally used to remind you of Jacob's duplicitous behavior, and yet how Esau is meeting him now. So we're, this is kind of like, hey, but. Just so you know, this is a big deal because of what just happened, is what the text is telling us. Um, and Esau, again, he looks up and he says, oh, who's all this? He wasn't coming to, to take them out, right, and, and, and wipe them out. He was saying, oh, I've got extended family. You know, let's meet them. And I think that's a really neat thing. Let me give you an example. I'm going to give you, so Father Chris says part of this is to learn how to read the Bible in a, in a way that really gets under the meat of it. Let me, let me give you an example of overreading. Do you want a quick example of overreading it? I think we've had a couple, but let me give you one more. Look at the order at which they greet him. Um, servants and their children, Leah and her children, and then it switched to Joseph and Rachel. Some, some people really read into this and say, oh, well, they make it really heartwarming. Like, well, Joseph ran out ahead of his mother and jumped up into his uncle's arms, and, they, you know, and then they hugged and embraced, and they had a wonderful moment, and then Rachel came up and... Uh, when you hear, especially when it comes to numerology or prophecy or anything like that, be careful when people paint a very detailed picture um, with very few colors, right? You, you just got to watch out for that. Again, that's a small aside, but I just want to say when it comes to that sort of, sort of thing, there is a limit to reading too much of the text. Amen? All right, let's continue. So, they come up to each other, and, they, and everything seems to be going all right. Um, and and you know, Esau says, what, what's with all this, these things that keep coming to me? Why, why are you sending me all these gifts? 
And Jacob answered, this is in verse 8, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. One thing I want to touch on here is, um, well, two things I want to touch on here. One is that notice that the first thing that Jacob says in verse 10, you would think, uh, no, please accept five found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. Everywhere else, the word there is blessing or accept this blessing. Do you notice that he, um, he doesn't use it? Five found favor in your sight, my hand. Yeah. That God, oh, and then look at verse 11, has dealt graciously with me. Not, this is the result of, you know, he does say blessing before, please accept my, my blessing, so what I'm giving you, but then he says, because God has dealt graciously with me, not because of the blessing that I received from our Father that you didn't get, right? He, he is, he, this is a purposeful not using of that word there, because he is still not sure. He's still in a mode of supplication and submissiveness. You notice that? Dealt graciously with me, not God has blessed me with the blessing you should have gotten. Um, you know, so again, he is still being a little bit careful when he's approaching him. And then second, again, Peniel, seeing your face, which is like seeing the face of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toe the line of um, reading too much into a text, but it is, it is entirely possible, certainly not likely, but possible, that as Jacob is wrestling God at Peniel, right, I've, that's what he named the place, I've seen the face of God, Peniel, um, and lived, that there was some sort of change happening in Esau that corresponded to that. That is entirely possible. It is possible that Esau marched with 400 men in order to, to wreak havoc, because kind of why else, but that there was some shift that God, a corresponding shift in a very different place that was happening with God in the heart of Esau. Does that make sense? And so that's one way that these two texts make that a possibility is by using the same term, like seeing the face of God, is, is, is possibly... Jacob kind of remembering back to what happened and saying, something's different here, or this isn't what I expected, and maybe it's because of what happened before. You follow me? There's that, there's that possible connection there. Um, four minutes. So, I'm tell, it, that, that helps you all out, though, I tell you. Um, and, then, and then this whole idea of giving, you know, I'm giving you these things, and then he politely refuses and he insists, that's, that's decorum. You know, Esau, does, Esau is likely doing pretty well for himself, but it, it's just mid, Middle Eastern decorum to refuse and to insist. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just how it's done. So that, it's not necessarily that Esau was like, yeah, but I really don't want it. He's probably like, well, no, please don't. Um, Why didn't Esau have to give? Because, one, again, Esau likely was coming to, to, to give him something, and... Um, <laughs> And two, because um, Esau, Esau would really have no, no reason to give him a gift because, because I mean, even, I mean, maybe a small token, but even Jacob coming, um, there's this weird dynamic though, because one is the older brother, but the other one has the blessing. So it's kind of who's preeminent here is the big question behind all this. So that's a good question. Um, all right, let's finish reading. 
Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that, that see, he's still calling him my Lord. Like Esau's like, Hey, brother, brother. That's how he keeps referring to him. And Jacob is still saying, or Israel at this point, um, still saying, My Lord, my Lord. Like he's still, he is still being um, submissive to him when, when Esau has shown that he doesn't really need to be. My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, Succoth, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. There the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, or God, the God of Israel. That's what that means. So in my last minute, I'm going to just fly through things and then... Do you really? Oh, I don't know about that. I don't. So, uh, so let's let's do. So let's let's fly through this, and then we'll we'll be done. Um, is Jacob lying to Esau? Do you notice this? So Esau is saying Esau is down here, right? He's in the dom. He's saying, "Hey, come with me." Uh, let's just go as brothers and journey on together. Jacob's like, I'm okay. And he says, well, let me leave you some men for protection. And then, and then you can just follow slowly behind with everybody. And Jacob's like, what need is there? I'm okay. Um, because this is where Jacob ends up going. This, this, this whole thing, by the way, is probably happening um, right around here. Jacob, after this, goes here. Let me draw better lines. Um, Jacob goes here. And then he ends up on his way to there. Well, Esau's place is down there. So again, is he, is he lying to him intentionally and being deceptive? You, could, you, would, you might think yes, um, because that, that seems to be the plain meaning of the text. That he is saying, I'm good, like I'll, I'll catch up with you, because he does say, I will meet you there. However, in chapter 36... Jacob and Esau meet again to bury their father, and we're not going to get into that today, but there is no animosity between them, and there, is, um, there was no, this isn't brought up at all by Esau. And so what, what again, this could be a custom, a Middle Eastern custom is this, is this let, me, you know, let me journey with you, let me escort you, and this, again, this polite refusal, where both of them know where it's going to lead. That's totally possible here that they both kind of know where this is going to lead, but they're just kind of going through the motions and the custom. Does that make sense? So that's not the most plain reading of the text, and I would always go with the most plain reading of the text, which is Jacob might be being a little, little squirrely, a little Jacob here, um, but, but it's possible. Again, I just want to open up the fact that it is possible. However, it may just be that Jacob is... Jacob still seems to be reacting out of fear, which we all kind of understand, right? He was just petrified where Esau's like, hey, we're fine, and Jacob still might just be really hesitant and guarded. Um, but 
Jacob also had always had going back to his father's land, which is here, as part of the plan. Does that make sense? So that's really all I, that's really all I want to say. Um, I say that. Um, <laughs> one, pay attention as we continue to go through the E100 because the Edomites will play into Israel's history. Um, you remember how you, know, you had Israel and Ishmael and you know, having two different people that, were, that came from them, Canaanites and the Israelites? Um, this happens again. And the Edomites are always kind of viewed as cousins to the Israelites. And sometimes they're, that's a good thing. Most of the time it's not a great thing. Herod the Great, who in the New Testament was the king of Israel, was an Edomite. Um, just so that kind of, so you show that this bloodline does tie in, right? This is a long-standing thing. It does, a couple thousand years doesn't change this, this bloodline or this history that goes into it. Isn't that interesting, though? Um, we'll, call, we'll just rename that es, uh, Esau's Revenge or something like that. But, but um, sorry, that's terrible. Um, and then my last point is Jacob made amends with God, but he also sought to make amends with Esau out of fear or whatever. Just... Remember that as we seek reconciliation with God, it's a both and, right? I think a lot of times in our prayers for forgiveness, we're like, God, forgive me, and we're, we're good. But there's also that, well, we also have to do what we can to make amends to the people that we've hurt. Does that make sense to everyone? So that's kind of my last pastoral point that I'm not going to go off on too much. But are there any more questions before I say, let's get out of here? Yeah. Um, it can, the name Jacob continues to be used by the text for time. But, and then, and even, even when Jacob's referred back to in other spots in the Old Testament, sometimes it's Israel and sometimes it's Jacob. So why, does, why, does, why, does it, why is it not like Abram, where it was just Abram and then Abraham? I don't have a good answer for you. I don't know why that, that same thing didn't happen with Jacob. But um, there, are, there are some continuing usages of the name Jacob from here on. So, all right, let's pray us out. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for speaking to us uh, through your word. God, we thank you that we can ground ourselves in it. God, I pray that you would um, make this not just a uh, case of uh, historical novelty, but be something that is living and true and applicable to our lives. We thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.